I'm Duncan Green here on the From Poverty to Power podcast. Um, wrestling with new technology. Um, we have half an hour in a conference room before some other person comes in and I've got three different people or three mics to play with. Who knows whether this will work, but we're going to give it a go. The subject today is a really interesting new report from Civicus, the International Network of Civil Society Organisations, called People Power Under Attack, and it's their annual uh, monitor of what's going on with civil society around the world. And I'm joined by two uh, speakers who've just presented the report, uh, Don Pereira, who is Civicus's chief geek, I suppose, is his uh, unofficial <laughs> title. Um, he's the, the number cruncher who's put together the monitor. And Tonu Basu, who is the policy lead at the Open Government Partnership. So welcome to the podcast. Um, I'm going to start with Dom. Dom, um, I want to use the report as a starting point rather than go through it in detail. I'll link to it on the, on, on the podcast and the blog and all the rest of it. But could you just give us the, the, the elevator pitch of what the big findings are? Of course. Thanks, Duncan. So the big finding this year is just 3% of the world's population live in countries that are open, have open civic space, which is our top rating in the Civicus Monitor. And this is a decrease from 4% last year. So we've seen some big downgrades of Australia losing its gold uh, rating as well as Malta. We've also seen a massive bloating in the repressed category, which is the second from bottom category, after the downgrade of both India, the world's largest democracy, and Nigeria. So across the world, the picture for civil society is quite bleak. It's under attack in all corners of the globe. Fantastic. Good, good and synthetic. Uh, thank you very much. So, so when we were talking in the, in, the, in, the, in the launch just now, it felt to me like you'd done the, the MRI scan. You know, this is, this is the scan of what's going on in civil society around the world. But there wasn't, you know, now we need to think about, okay, so why are we seeing what we're seeing? We need to get onto the diagnosis bit. So, so Tono, maybe you can start, but just why the crackdown? Why now? I had a, you know, I will get onto the protest movement uh, earlier, um, um, but, uh, you yeah, know, I, I read a whole piece about why the protests are happening in 2019, not in 2009, not 2029. So could you give us a little bit about why you think the crackdown on civil society is happening now and, and, and what it looks like. Yeah, and Duncan, then just sort of going back to what John said earlier, I think there are a couple of, of, of trends we're seeing. One is we're seeing, at least from the OGP perspective, we're seeing more countries trying to be open in terms of being more transparent. We've got more right to information laws in the world than we have back in 20, 2009. We have more countries working on anti-corruption. You know, Nigeria, Dom mentioned Nigeria. Within OGP, it's, it's doing some of the more ambitious anti-corruption work from ending anonymous companies to opening up contracts. But clearly, there are some interests that are being harmed as that as moving towards more transparency does. You know, you have information out there in the open that you don't want and people get hurt. And then you have, therefore, also, not saying it's ne necessarily causation. I know you were coming to that, Duncan. I saw, I saw the mic going up. Uh, but there is definite trend towards more closing down. And we're, we're, something that we're seeing is governments and non-state actors using the word, some of the language of open government, of transparency, of, of like telling civil society to be more tra transparent by perhaps having more onerous registration laws or tackling only anti-corruption activists. That's, some, that's one. The second big thing I do want to focus on is this protest space, which I know you want to go into detail on later, but there are more people coming out on the streets. There are more people saying, well, you know, you're talking about more transparency, but we don't feel heard. 
we don't feel heard, we don't feel we have our rights, and we don't feel that governments are working for us. And so there is a pushback on democratically elected governments from Chile to Colombia to India on, on, on really wanting more and, and being wanting to be involved more. So let's dig into that a little bit. So, so you've got these two processes. You've got a crackdown on civil society. You've got a global protest spike right? um, uh, in 2019. What's the link between them? I, I mean, uh, so, so Dom, you're the, you're, the, you're, the, you're the number cruncher. You're the, 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 the pattern spotter. Do you think there are more protests going on in places which are cracking down on civil society space or, or are the protests going on where people can still organise and protest? What are you seeing? I think it's a bit of both, to be honest, Duncan. Um, so, and sorry, sorry, to, sorry to give you the, uh, the diplomatic answer, but I think, and just to come back, circle back to something that we said earlier about this being a, a more pronounced crackdown now, I, I'm not sure I agree. I think it's been bubbling below mm. the surface for some time. Um, and I think what we've seen is this really reach the boiling point um, and it's unleashed a kind of ferocious wave of citizen action where the traditional avenues for participation through an NGO or mm -hmm. through something else are being closed down. People are starting to reclaim the streets and, and, and to take that. So, so your arrow of causation is from the crackdown to the protests, very I, clearly. Yes. I, yeah, I think I would be inclined to go that way. Tono? I'm going to say both ways. I, I know that's an easy answer, but I think from the crackdown to the protests, but also protests like governments just being scared of more people coming out uh, on the street and wanting to already preempt some of that and, and close that space. So what I've read in the past from Civicus and others is that this all goes back to the colour revolutions at the start of the 2000s, where there was clearly foreign interference and foreign support for civil society-driven re regime change, and that scared the hell out of a bunch of governments who then went round and started um, sh swapping notes, really, on how to... How to is, that, is that still the case, as far as you're concerned, that that's an ongoing process for the last 15 years of governments becoming more aware of the risks and doing more about it? Definitely. I mean, I, I think it, I would definitely agree with that. And I think that the cost of repressing protests is really high. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to be cognizant of that when we talk about like civic space restrictions. Restricting some NGO that only a small group in a silo is going to care about is a much lower cost. Whereas when it comes to widespread repression, meeting protests with tear gas or water cannons or even lethal force, I think the cost is that much higher. So I think that that is really in response to, to what we've seen, but governments are sharing notes in how to repress these, how to tackle the organisers, to cut the heads off these movements, to stop them from coming to fruition. So if you put, your, I'll come to you in a minute, Tony, but just if you put yourselves in the, in the shoes of government then, civil society crackdown is prevention because you want to avoid the cure, which is the repression. Is that right? Well, I want to sort of, the protest angle is one space where we're seeing crackdown. I do want to talk about the digital space, Duncan, because I think this is somewhere where it is, it's, it's not just crackdown to, in, in terms of, uh, in preempting, uh, but also just lack of any policy there that sort of, you know, in, there is no globally recognized policy on internet shutdowns, for instance forget about domestic, right, on, on how to regulate social media. So we're also seeing misuse of some of these new technologies, whether it's on social media, whether it's things like surveillance, illegal surveillance, because there is no agreement between governments or within a, a country on what can be done or can't be done, what could be used, what can't be used, you know, can political ads be targeting a certain number of people or no, there is, there, it is an unclaimed policy space that is being used both by governments and not state actors to crack down. So the sort of joyous Twitter revolution moments around the Arab Spring have suddenly have gone full circle. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay, I mean, any other 
areas of innovation. So people, in the, one of the things that got, got my attention was people talking about innovation by the bad guys. So, you know, so you, Tony, were talking about anti-corruption, using anti-corruption language as a way to attack your opponents. You've also talked about, um, you know, the, the power of digital as a, as a for sort of the armies of trolls you were talking about. Anything else that you're seeing in terms of innovation, new tactics from the bad guys as part of this exercise? So, yeah, I think that definitely as Civicus, what we're seeing is the delegation of restrictions to, to non-state actors, to proxy actors who work on behalf of the government. And who are these people? So we're talking about groups like government-sponsored uh, NGOs who crowd out spaces for civil society participation internationally or in domestic policy forum. We also see that partisan media or state-owned media plays an almost appalling role in publicly vilifying activists who speak out against the government. Um, and I think, again, w when it comes to repression, because repression is costly for states, we see this delegation to pro-government militias who can put down protests and the government can basically look the other way and say, hey, this is a civil society problem, this has got nothing to do with us, when I think it's quite clear that this is a story of kind of clean hands but dirty gloves for states. They're clearly wearing those gloves. Yeah, I wrote down that soundbite. It's very <laughs> good, isn't it? Um, I like it. Um, Tana, anything to add to, uh, in terms of innovation? What, what new tactics are you seeing? I mean, one last one to mention, and, and I think this, I'm curious to see how it'll show up in the Press Freedom Index um, and as, as it correlates to the Civicus Monitor, is um, repression of journalists by using the language of fake news and um, you know disinformation so those are challenges that exist but we are seeing governments keen to control the media in various places by using you know that that language saying there is just a lot of um, so you, there, there are positive things they can do like there are there are countries with an OGP we're seeing that looking more at digital literacy media literacy uh, support or looking at independent media um, but there are the, the easy way out for a lot of governments unfortunately is to crack down so let's be heretical. To what extent has the way civil society uh, and civil society organisations, which is not the same thing, the way they have behaved, the way they have organised, the way they've been structured, brought this upon themselves? Okay, now this is something we don't normally talk about, but you know, are there issues around accountability, around CSOs becoming too dependent on foreign aid funders? You know, I've been in conversations with people who say this could actually have some positives out. out if it, some positives if it leads to CSOs re-engaging with their publics and, and getting out of the aid bubble, these kind of questions. So let's, let's go into the dangerous uh, area of, um, you know, is it our fault? Uh, I would stop short of saying it's our fault, <laughs> uh, but I think that undoubtedly the structures of formalised civil society have brought about restrictions. Um, Formalised civil society is particularly easy to restrict if you're reliant on foreign funding, if you have a bank account or you try to move staff across, across borders, for example. But I think the point that you raised, um, something that we're at Civicus doing, is looking at connections to constituents and how that increases resilience to these restrictions. Okay, restrictions are going to happen. If you criticise a government, they will try and shut you down. I think that we, everyone knows that. But I think that reforging those connections to those that you want to serve could hold the key to building more resilient, formalised civil society organisations if you want to sustain that movement over a prolonged period of time. Because the bad guys are not stupid. They, they see your weak points and they go for those. They don't go for your strengths, right? So if, right. You're, if you're weak on accountability, if you aren't actually represented or representing your constituents, 
they'll see that and they'll come for you. Right? Of course. Tony, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I want to pick up exactly on, on what you said is I think reconnecting to constituents, I think where legitimacy lies is the larger group of communities that civil society work with, represent, engage with. And, and you know, I'll give you an example. In OGP, one of the big anti-corruption issues that civil society and government together are tackling is beneficial ownership ending anonymous companies, right? Shell companies that are used to move money from here to Bahamas to Panama and chains of anonymous companies. But a lot of civil society organizations are now checking themselves. It's an elite conversation that you and I have. Tomorrow, if I go on the streets and tell somebody, if I tell my friend or my grandmother or somebody saying beneficial ownership transparency, they'll be like, why would I care? What do we want? Beneficial yeah, ownership. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it doesn't make for the catchiest slogan, does it? And I think this is where we've in a way lost that connection to even not identify and explain or get legitimacy in talking about an issue with people, you know, how does this matter to my public service, you know, my schools and my healthcare? And yes, anonymous companies exist. And which is why I love films like Laundromat that are actually linking it to the real issue. So that's one, is how do we make sure the issues we talk about are, are connected and getting relevant, are, are connecting to the relevant issues that everyday communities are talking about. The second piece, I think, because civil society has become so sophisticated in, 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 you know, in advocacy, we in OGP have seen often that our partners, whether working on anti-corruption or human rights or public services, often don't talk to each other, even on something like civic space that is such a cross-civil society issue. And this is something I think we've not been good at, um, and by we I mean as a civil, you know, I'm, I'm switching sides, a civil society community. So I think this is something, and in, in, in OGP, I, you know, one of the, the strongest things we've seen is when there are strong policies that have come about in OGP countries, it's when different groups of civil society have managed to connect behind a certain issue. Rather than saying, well, you know, I want this issue because I'm, a, I'm an anti-corruption activist and I'm one issue because I'm a human rights activist and seeing them as competing, which is not necessarily the case. Yeah, I mean, just, just in the conversation we had just now at the launch of, of, of the Civicus report, um, I was struck by the silos. You know, the human rights people mm -hmm. are usually lawyers and they talk in a particular mm -hmm. language. Uh, anti-corruption people are usually economists or political scientists. They talk a completely different language. And the, side, the academic silos, let alone the gulf between all of those and people actually risking their lives on the ground, we've got a huge kind of in translation, interpretation sort of challenge if we're actually going to put the strengths together because otherwise people I don't understand what lawyers talk about most of the time right I mean it's a it's an issue anyway um, one of the things which strikes me from the report and from the, the the issues that are causing most anger is that they seem to be probably more about identity issues than about economics issues there is still some economic stuff in there in terms of natural resource extraction and anti-corruption and so on. But there's an awful, you know, the, the, the biggest, uh, the group that's most targeted are, are, are women's rights defenders, for example. Have you seen a shift from good old Marxist economic issues to, to politics of identity? It's a good question, Duncan. I think, um, I would say yes. I would say yes, as, as Dom from... from no, not necessarily speaking on behalf of Civicus, I would say that yes, there has been that, that shift and that actually the identity-based activism that we're seeing is far more potent than those that are driven solely by economic demands. And I think that we have to respond to that. Um, just to speak to some of the findings from our report in terms of like women human rights defenders and LGBTI defenders being some of the most targeted in the world. I think that 
organised and formalised bits of civil society have not done enough to stand with them and to translate their struggles or at least have sympathy with them and empathy for them in kind of broader spaces that we occupy. So I think that there's work to be done. I think that it is shifting uh, to that identity-based politics, but there's work to be done within organisations like Civicus and, and others. Tony? Um, I, I would still say it's a little bit of both, you know, Duncan. If you look at the, the reasons that people are out, coming out on the streets, in Chile it was inequality. Yes, there, you know, within inequality, we all know there are layers. There are more who are privileged and there are whose voices are heard more than others. But it was still inequality. You know, in Hong Kong, it's democracy. It's, it's political rights that people are coming out on the street. Again, there are some who definitely have greater access to a seat at the table than others. But it is, so it is within some of those larger socioeconomic and political movements, though that identity piece definitely plays out. And, uh, and we're seeing that even in the reform commitments we're seeing in OGP, we're seeing a lot of like citizen engagement or, or citizen monitoring commitments around service delivery from like Nigeria to Madrid to, uh, you know, Ghana. But the, we are also seeing an ask of particular communities, women's groups saying, you know, how are we bringing women to the table? If you're talking about uh, contracts, you know, are women in Kenya now, they've been pushed to um, declare how many women-owned businesses get contracts, because that's an ask that came from civil society. So uh, I think within larger conversations of like what, what you call Marxist <laughs> uh, uh, protest movements or asks, we are seeing that identity play out, but I wouldn't quite call them as two separate mm -hmm. conversations. Okay, let's keep let's keep probing at the difficult bits because that's more fun, right? So violence. Okay, so there was a really interesting post on the blog uh, from Naomi Hussain uh, uh, this week, saying she'd been sitting in a three-day World Bank seminar on social accountability, and they were talking about scorecards and nice, polite, organised, tall, kitty kinds of uh, kinds of protest and kinds of activism. And on their timelines, as they were sitting in this meeting, the world was on fire, right, in so many countries. And a lot of the protest movements are violent, um, whether because of response to violence or actually initiating violence. There's you know, a bit of both. Um, how, does, how do you understand the question of violence and protest and violence and civil society? Um, is it a problem? Is it inevitable? You know, just talk to me about the problem of violence. Tony, let's start with you. Uh, the difficult one. So I think there are two sides to it. One is there are vested interests. You know, often protest movements start out peaceful. They start out calm. There are just groups. You know, I was in Georgia last week, and there were protesters out on the street right in front of parliament asking for proportional representation. And uh, there was a, there, there was, they were peaceful, they were, they were young people and they were talking. But I heard that over the summer, a lot of the protests that happened there started out peacefully. But then, you know, the, op the, the, the politics between the government and the opposition played in and then played into the protest. There were others who came out on the streets who weren't the original group of sort of peaceful protesters, but they're people who, who like to make trouble. With Syria being the kind of maximum version of exactly, that. Exactly, I mean, It was all right? peaceful at the beginning. Exactly. And so that, that's one element. I think the second element is is, and this is something Dom you said earlier, is I think governments do tend to realize that crackdown of protests is sort of the last, the last bit and they don't want to go there. But we are seeing governments go there. So what is the kind of, you know, what is the kind of training governments are giving to their law enforcement? So is it that they're, that they're standing on the front line and you have these young men who are just panicking if they see a protest come towards them? And this is not just in places like Syria and others. We saw this in France as well. 
you know, we saw that happen where there was just there were just two groups where there were law enforcement and there were uh, the Yellow West protesters that started off peaceful but then clashed very quickly. So what is the kind of, you know, one, I will go to the laws. What are the kind of freedom of assembly laws that exist, including training for law enforcement, including some of those questions that people don't quite unpack. It's not just about, you know, right to protest there, but what is the kind of background infrastructure a country has and how can we strengthen some of that as well? So on that question, can I just ask, do you think there's some shadowy figure with a PowerPoint going around government to government saying this is how to do it. Playbook. <laughs> it's like here's your playbook. I don't think I don't think it's that coordinated. I mean I would love that would be very simple, wasn't it? It would be really simple if it was like one giant puppeteer who was trying international to, yeah. the new <laughs> Yeah. But I just think there are they, these are these are challenges and 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 I you know people in one country see protesters coming out in another country. We are more connected. We are more connected. You're seeing it on social media. And often, I mean, you've seen like the, the France protests, they weren't organized in, in, at the beginning in, in Georgia or in Hong Kong. It wasn't one organization that's coming out on the streets either. It is, it is a broader group. So the scale of the problem is very different now. Okay, well, let's, let's come on to that. That's really interesting because organizations like Civicus and, and Oxfam and probably OGP tend to equate civil society organizations with civil society. And that's a monumental mistake. And the mistake appears to be getting bigger because if you look at an awful lot of the protest movements, they are unstructured. Mm -hmm, exactly. They, they, they are actually you know, caught exactly. CSOs completely by surprise. Exactly. So what's going on there? How do you understand the fact that CSOs have become so delinked from popular anger? I think, you know, and this is something we say to governments in OJP, consult early, consult often, make sure you're bringing in citizens, whether it's to tackle, monitor corruption, monitor public services, participate in budgets. But these are, you know, and we're seeing reforms coming on there. But this is maybe something civil society, we should tell ourselves that it's civil, formalized civil society organizations. This is also something we should talk about. It's not just something government should do. But it's like, how are we, in, you know, one example is the kind of citizens assembly that we're seeing here in the UK, where there are deliberative democracy structures happening, not just before elections, not just when people are coming out on the streets, but these are targeted topics like climate change, like budgets, that organizations working with parliament and government are bringing groups of citizens together just to hear what they have to say. And I think that's something we need to do more of, both as government as well as civil society. Tom? So there's a quote that I absolutely love, it's, which is, you know, while we were busy writing our press statements, other people are out on the streets <coughs> making change. And I think that this question really speaks to it. And I think it's really important to recognise the structures within which formalised civil society works. And I think organisations, by their nature, formalised groups, are more cautious than individual activists who are leaderless, they're dynamic, they're fluid, they can move and adapt where they need to, which makes them ferocious um, and, and quite difficult to put down. How embarrassing. <laughs> That's my phone. My bad. My bad. <laughs> um, but like, uh, what I would say is I would draw from what has been termed as the, the Balkan Spring, where we saw protests in, in Serbia and, and other countries in the, in the Western Balkans. And what we saw was uh, individuals working for CSOs who in their organisational capacity could do very little, but as individuals were active and part of these movements and they're kind of catalysts behind them. So I think we need to delineate between, yes, organisations are incredibly cautious and they may be hesitant to engage in wide-scale protests, particularly if it's violent, but the individuals, the learnings, the expertise that comes from people who work in you know, professionalised NGOs, if you would, 
those people, I like to think, are still involved in, in protest movements across the world. Hmm. Okay. Any final thoughts? I think we've, we've had already, we covered a, a lot in 23 minutes or so. My phone is out of control. Um, I'm going to just throw it across the room away from the microphone. Uh, any final thoughts? I think one thing I do want to say, and I mentioned it in our discussion before, is I think we need to figure out ways, and by we I mean civil society organizations, formal as well as government, to productively sort of galvanize this energy that comes with the citizen protests and movements. And one example I gave earlier was what the government of South Africa, this current government of, uh, not South Africa, South Korea did. Uh, you know, the previous government was brought down after five months of like candlelight protests on the streets on the Gwangamun Square, which is their big square in Seoul. In Seoul. And one of the things the government, the new government did is, uh, is, is start something called a Gwangamun First Street Platform. They looked at online and offline consultations and in the first 50 days, they got 180,000 policy ideas from citizens on what they should do. They took about 1,800 from there into their, and, and I think about 100 from that actually made it into the new government's policy program. And I think channel, channeling this kind of energy that's out there is really important. And South Korea is one example we know in OGP that's done that and done that well and is continuing to do that. But I really want, I hope that more of us, both in the civil society community and world governments, can figure out a way to channel some of this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and just as we're talking about protest rights, you know, as we've documented in our report, some 96 countries around the world over the course of 2019 violated protest rights. And, as I said in the presentation, you know, our biggest recommendation isn't technocratic. It's not, not that complicated. All we're calling for is for states to uphold fundamental commitments on human rights, be that freedom of expression, association and assembly. And I think that groups like Civicus and other groups need to be better at using the international system, using the levers at our disposal to hold states to account when they do renege on those commitments. Because in many cases, they're getting away with it and they're winning this fight. So we need to up our skills. Okay, that seems like a good place to end. Thank you, uh, 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 Tonobasso and Don Pereira. Uh, it's been really good fun talking to you.